Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned. This podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern variety. So plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice you can make. Don't say we didn't warn you. We did do a Burbage break, I believe, on the Essex Rebellion at some point in an episode. We did. (sighs) Am I blowing my load? No, I don't think so. Uh, I think this is anything else to talk about. We we did that Burbage break, I believe, pre dissertation. Nothing is pre dissertation. (laughs) Believe it or not, you did have a life before the dissertation started to take form in your in your brain. It is true. I I knew you then. I mean, it's not on our list of Burbage breaks. Okay, well, maybe it wasn't a Burbage break. Maybe it I was mean, more sure, of I'm sure I just like, one mentioned the... it in the 101. Because yeah, because anyway. I remember you also quoting Elizabeth as part of it. Like, oh, motherfucker. Shakespeare show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock, and together we are Whamlet. And this week we're talking about Richard II in a 201 style thing. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more, despite our grumbling and how mm. trepidatious mm. we feel about this episode. Mm. 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 Yes. Things are a little different for 201 level episodes, but if you've been a listener for a while, it's not going to feel that different for you. No. Because also, we should probably actually just like take that sentence out of the timeline. And by timeline, I mean outline. Except that I kind of feel like people hop around in our episodes and I not mean, a lot maybe. of people listen to us chronologically. So I don't well, know. Well, sure. Except that now, like, the amount of 201s doesn't make it a different thing anymore. That's I true. I feel like that's, that's what, anyway. Um, so at 201 level episodes, we assume that you kind of know the play, so we don't tell you what the play is about. Um, but if you need a refresher or you are like Richard who, um, you can listen to the 101 episode that's in our back catalog, uh, in which we say some things. I remember literally nothing of what we said <laughs> in that episode. Ooh, so. Um, me either. Um, yeah. just pro tip y'all. It's not the Richard with the hunchback who nope. was found in a parking lot or yeah. wherever the hell that was. Um, I think that was Gloucester. It's, sure. the other, it's the other Richard. Yeah. First no, one. No, Lester. Well, the second Lester. one. Lester. Thank you. Yeah. Lester, Gloucester, all those stirs yeah. in the UK. I'm all confused. Yeah. Any hoozle. That's it's not that Richard. It's the other nope. Richard. It's the other one. The, the gay more, one. The more effeminate one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so in 201 level episodes, we go narrow and deep on a couple of topics, one or two. Today, it'll mostly be one mm. uh, relating to the play. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and so today, we, and by we, I mean I, am uh, talking about the Essex Rebellion, which features prominently in my dissertation for reasons uh, that I'm Sweet. unclear on, even though well, it's my dissertation. You know, maybe maybe through like talking it out, hashing it out a little bit and like just getting the ideas out there, maybe Great. it'll be productive for you, you know? I don't know. Let's hope. Let's I hope. Mean, you know, I know. She, yeah. She's got folks, she's looking at me like a woman with no faith left in anything. None. But none. I am but yeah. a shell of my former self. I do not recommend uh writing a dissertation if you can avoid it. Oh, so Okay. 
Um, anyway, uh, before I do that in your ears, before that, why don't we do something else in your ears, which is talk about some rhetoric. Uh, so if you have listened to pretty much any of our one-on-one episodes, we talk about rhetorical devices, um, and we give you some examples, but then when we do the 201, what we like to do is revisit like a single device and talk about it in that specific play that we're talking about. So today- We're talking about some other things. Right, right. Uh, Sometimes that can give us a line reading or help us understand a particular character through their speech patterns and through their rhetoric. I can think of no better device to return to today than one that really, really just dominates the entire play of Richard II, and that's metonymy. Yeah, Um, yeah. that's a good one. Smart choice. It's huge, huge in this play. So to refresh your memory of what metonymy is, uh, it's a close relative of synecdoche. They are both um, rhetorical devices that use uh, a part to represent a whole thing or whole idea. Um, the way I keep them separate in my head is that metonymy is more like a symbolic object that represents an idea, like a crown representing a monarchy, mm-hmm. uh, like in this play, uh, as opposed to like your face representing your whole body. Yeah. Right? So like- synecdoche is like a part, literal part of something for the whole, like your hand in marriage is not just your hand, it's all of you, right? Right. But whereas yeah. like metonymy is like when we talk about the White House, what we really mean is like right. the government. You know? Right, the government, yeah, the presidency. That's a nice, right, big, a nice, things. tight uh, yeah. example of metonymy. Right, yeah. So, uh, so looking at metonymically at this play, I mean, it's the crown, the crown, the crown, our golden crown, the hollow crown, my crown, your crown, this crown, that crown, 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 crown. Um, it's used around 20 times, up just upwards a little bit, upwards of 20 times in the play. Um, most of those times, it's used metonymically. I think once it's used as a verb, uh, once mm-hmm. it is used literally to refer to the literal object of the crown, uh, and and the rest of the time, it's it's a metonymy. Uh, and and while I could give you all of the verbal examples of those, I think really just the best and most clear one is in Act 4, Scene 1. Uh, it, this, this is the scene where uh, Bolingbroke, a.k.a. the future Henry IV, and Richard II literally hold a crown between them. They, they hold a literal crown between them as Richard talks about the transfer of monarchic power from him to Bolingbroke. So in this short little passage, this is what Richard says about it. He says, give me the crown. Here, cousin, seize the crown. Here, cousin, on this side my hand and on that side thine. Now is this golden crown like a deep well that owes two buckets filling one another, the emptier ever dancing in the air, the other down unseen and full of water. That bucket down and full of tears am I, drinking my griefs whilst you mount up on high. So there, it's it's just a massive symbol all the way through this play. Wherever you look for it, you will find it. Uh, it it's pervasive in, in this text. So make of that what you will. I, I find it fascinating. Um, and, and yeah, I could think of no better device to return to than metonymy today. So love it. Yeah. I love it. And there's our short and sweet little uh, return to some rhetoric. All right. So moving on to the big one, the discussion topic. Right. Okay. So I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go. Yeah, and if just you, do that. Okay. I'm just going to go. 
I'm just gonna yeah. go. <laughs> I'm just gonna go. On February 7th, 1601, friends of Robert Devereux, the second Earl of Essex, attended a performance at the Globe, a performance that they themselves had commissioned from Augustine Phillips, who was manager of the Lord Chamberlain's men at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, the entertainment that they saw was a play, quote, of the deposing and killing of King Richard II, a play that literary scholars have generally understood to be Shakespeare's Richard II, while historians tend to favor a lost play based on uh, a history of Henry IV written by a guy called John Hayward. Um, And John Hayward can go fuck himself because he's fucking up my dissertation. (laughs) It's fine. So that evening, on on the evening of February 7th, 1601, uh, Essex himself received a summons to appear before the Privy Council at once, which is not a summons to be taken lightly. Uh, rightly, however, suspecting that this was a ruse to lure him to court and have him arrested, Essex refused to go. The next morning, uh, his friends began to gather at his house. At mid-morning, a delegation of courtiers arrived to summon Essex to court again. Uh, Essex and the Earl of Southampton met Lord Keeper Edgerton, Lord Chief Justice Popham, the Earl of Worcester, and Sir William Knollys, who was uh, Essex's own uncle. They all met in the courtyard, exchanged words, uh, and then surrounded the courtiers and locked them inside the house under the guard of a guy called Sir John Davies. Uh, Essex left the courtiers with assurances of his quick return and a promise to let them join him on his triumphant entry into the palace. So uh, a play happened. The next morning, some people showed up and were like, hey, Essex, come with us. And he was like, nah, how about I lock you up in my house instead? Is that cool? Is that cool? So that's where we're at. Okay. So Essex goes back and down his courtyard. He gathers his friends and they set off for Whitehall to confront his enemies, particularly Sir Robert Cecil, the Queen's secretary, and Sir Walter Raleigh and Lord Cobham, whom Essex suspected of trying to have him murdered. Um, Essex set out into the city of London, hoping to muster support from the sheriff and the Lord Mayor, as well as the people. In total, he was able to gather around 150 men to his procession over the course of several hours, which is not great. Uh, In the meantime, court heralds proclaimed Essex and his friends as traitors, which is also not great. Um, And as people began to split off because they were like, oh, this guy's a traitor. Hell no. Thanks. Bye. Um, And the the leaders, Essex and his friends, returned to Essex House. Uh, They found that their hostages had been released. So uh, by dinner time, Essex and his friends had surrendered and his rebellion ceased to exist such as it was it wasn't really anything ever and this is this is the Essex Rebellion okay a performance of something happens some words are exchanged some arrests are made and that's that's what happened over the course of February 7th February 8th 1601 so So basically we're coming up on that anniversary like this weekend uh yeah it will just have passed for our listeners by the time this this episode yeah. yeah 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 interesting yeah mm-hmm. um okay so as as this sort of brief recounting of the rebellion shows shakespeare is little more than a footnote to the events in fact uh he's a footnote at best right um in the intervening centuries scholars have argued 
tooth and nail over the evidence for the identity of what play these people saw on February 7th. Um, The surviving evidence boils down to a handful of mentions in official documents after the fact. Okay, so first we have the calendar of state papers, um, which is just like the records of all court proceedings um, for Elizabeth's government. Um, We have records... Uh, of notes on Robert Cecil's chamber speech uh, on February 13th, during which he remarked that Essex's actions, quote, appeared by the book written on Henry IV, making this time seem like that of Richard II. He would have removed Her Majesty's servants, stepped into her chair, and perhaps had her treated like Richard II, Uh, unquote. Uh, This, this reference that Cecil has made um, is a reference to John Hayward's book, The First Part of the Life and Reign of King Henry IV, published in 1599 and dedicated to our friend Essex. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. 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 A further, a further allusion to Hayward's text appears in the calendar of state papers the following day, uh, quote, two years since. So two years ago now, um, a history of Henry IV was printed and published wherein all the complaints and slanders which have given, been given out by seditious traitors against the government, both in England and Ireland are set down and falsely attributed to those times, thereby cunningly insinuating that the same abuses being now in this realm that were in the days of Richard II, the like course might be taken for redress. This book was no sooner published, but the Earl, knowing hundreds of them to be dispersed, would needs seem the first that disliked it, whereas he has confessed that he he had the written copy with him to peruse 14 days, plotting how he might become another Henry IV, unquote. So people are saying, um, here's a book that this guy wrote likening what is happening now to the reign of Henry, uh, Henry IV and Richard II. Um, and Essex was trying to take note of that and be an example and uh, maybe depose Elizabeth. That's, that's sort of the case that's being built against Essex. Mm-hmm. Um, further linking Queen Elizabeth to Richard II, uh, this note makes the case that Essex was trying to cast himself as Bolingbroke a little bit. Both of these references to the history of Richard II and Henry IV put the emphasis on Hayward's book and not on anything dramatic, which is also interesting. Francis Bacon, that uh, witty pirate of Elizabethan oh, England. You mean the real Shakespeare? Francis yes, Bacon? yes, Francis Bacon. The, Indeed, the re- yes, yes, yeah, that guy. Uh-huh. Um, Francis Bacon corroborates uh, the, the emphasis on the book over the play. Um, in a thing that he wrote about the Earl of Essex after Essex had been beheaded. Um, And he writes, quote, For Her Majesty being mightily incensed with that book, which was dedicated to my Lord of Essex, being a story of the first year of King Henry IV, thinking it a seditious prelude to put into the people's heads boldness and faction, said she had good opinion that there was treason in it, and asked me if I could not find any places in it that it might be drawn within case of treason. End quote. Uh, so that the narrative of this incident wants to cast Elizabeth and X's Essex in the roles of Richard and Henry is kind of clear to me. That seems like a very clear parallel that was being made uh, as they were building their case against Essex. So the first time that we get a mention of the, the play, the play that they all went and saw on the 7th, uh, which I should note, Essex did not attend. Only his friends went. Essex was not in attendance at this play. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so the first time that the play comes up in records of the rebellion is February 16th, um, which is like nine days later, if I'm mathing correctly. That uh-huh. sounds right. From yeah. the 7th to the 16th. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Sir William Constable gives an interview um, and he tells his interrogators that the conspirators, the conspirators all dined together, quote, over against Temple Gate. And after which Thomas Lee came to the play where they were all assembled at the Globe on the bank side, though he doesn't actually say what the play was. He just like acknowledges, you know, we went to see a play, right? Sir Gelly Merrick, who features prominently in many, many things concerning Essex and this play. Um, Sir Gelly Merrick is Essex's personal secretary, basically, and he's the one who went and commissioned the performing of whatever play it was they saw on February 7th. And he, in his uh, interrogation, gives evidence that it was, uh, in fact, some other guy who was responsible uh, for Essex's friends going to to see the play. So Sir Gelly Merrick uh, is the one who did the procuring, we think, uh, but he puts the blame on Sir Charles Percy. And he says, on the motion of Sir Charles Percy, they went all together to the globe over the water where the Lord Chamberlain's men used to play and were there somewhat before the play began. Sir Charles telling them that the play would be of Harry the Fourth. Uh, he thinks it was Sir Charles Percy who pro- procured that play to be played at that time. The play was of King Henry the fourth and of the killing of Richard the second and played by the Lord Chamberlain's players end quote. So this is really the first time we're getting the substance of what the play was. But as you might have heard, it still doesn't identify the play remarkably, right? It's enough Mm -hmm. that we, okay. So now we know what the play was about, but like, right. You know, it's not, it's nothing definitive. So also uh, William Camden, a guy named William Camden, who's a historian um, in his chronicle of the life of Queen Elizabeth, he describes the play uh, as being about Richard II, um, but also links the play and the events of the rebellion to Hayward's text. So he writes, quote, Merrick was accused that by letters sent to his brother Salisbury Groin and others of expert boldness, he had drawn them to his party that he had undertaken the defense of Essex House that he had fortified and defended the same against the queen's forces that he had with money procured an old worn out play of the tragical deposing of King Richard the second, uh, to be acted upon the public stage before the conspirators, which the lawyers interpreted to be done by him as if they should now behold that acted upon the stage, which was the next day to be acted in deposing the queen. And the like censure was given upon a book of the same argument set forth a little before by Hayward, a learned man and dedicated to the Earl of Essex as if it had been written as an example and incitement to the deposing of the queen. So let's go back and unpack that real fast because that was a lot and the syntax is fucking weird. So Camden says, that Merrick said that they procured an old worn out play Mm -hmm. of the tragical deposing of King Richard II because if that were acted in front of the conspirators, they would then be inspired to go and perform it in their own lives against Elizabeth the next day. Okay. But also a similar accusation was made against this book by John Hayward that is fucking up everything forever. (laughs) (laughs) Ask me how I feel about John Hayward. I don't like him. I don't like his book and I don't like him. Also, he like rotted in prison for years. So like he got what was coming to him and he doesn't need my posthumous hate. 
So old worn out play. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I forget when Shakespeare wrote Richard II. 1596-ish, if okay. my brain is serving me right. And this is all happening in like 1601. 1601. Yeah. Okay. General consensus is uh, that at the time of the rebellion, Richard II by Shakespeare was not more than four or five years old. Okay. So, so like we worn can, out copy yeah. of the play. It is conceivable that it could have been. Yes. Uh, th- this that that particular phrase, that old worn out play, uh, has been the object of just reams of ink of arguing about what that means. Um, Your so own can, or, or no? Uh, other, there's a, a huge critical conversation about okay about okay. that. Yeah, and we can circle back to that. Um, so, okay, so this this bit uh, from William Camden, this is the only account that I have found that mentions the play and the book in the same mm-hmm. breath. Um, and that not that interesting? Okay, uh, so Francis Bacon, writing some more <laughs> about uh, good old Essex, um, puts the blame for procuring the play back on Essex, not on Essex, sorry, on Merrick, his, his secretary. He says, the quote, the afternoon before the rebellion, Merrick, with a great company of others that afterwards were all in the action, had procured to be played before them a play of deposing King Richard II. Neither was it casual, but a play bespoken by Merrick. Um, and so not only, but when it was told him by one of the players that the play was old and they should have loss in playing it because few would come to it, there was 40 shillings extraordinary given to play it. And so thereupon played it was. So here's another thing that says the play's old. The actors don't want to do it. We'll give you more money. Do this play. Right. And therefore the play is done. Okay, mm-hmm. so this yeah. is another another crucial piece of trying to figure out what exactly this play was. Is like, okay, here's another account that says the play was old. Augustine Phillips was one of the shareholders for the Lord Chamberlain's men. Mm-hmm. You know him, Aubrey, very well because he appears on the wall, doesn't yes. he? Yeah, he's on the wall. He is he's on the share as well. He's on the share as well in the lobby of the American yep. Shakespeare Center. Yeah. Yep. Um, he is the only person with a personal connection to Shakespeare that we know of who was hauled in for questioning about this event. Um, He was company manager or whatever at that point. He is the person who was, who took the money for, for the commission performance. Um, Sure. So he gets hauled in. uh, But in his testimony, he leaves Merrick out entirely and names a whole bunch of other people. So he says all of these people spoke to some of the players to play the deposing and killing of King Richard II and promised to give them 40 shillings more than their ordinary to do so. Um, So Augustine Phillips and his his company, the Lord Chamberlain's Ben, had determined to play some other play, holding that of King Richard as being so old and so long out of use that they should have a small company at it. But at this request, they were content to play it. So here's another another bit of testimony saying the play is old. No one's going to come. And this is particularly frustrating because uh, if any man knows what play it was, it's Augustine Phillips because he was a member of the company and he doesn't name the play. Um, he comes so near the matter without providing any definitive proof of the play's identity. So those who wish this play to be Shakespeare's play have been able to convince themselves of the fact, while those who favor a lost play based on 
uh, Hayward's book or perhaps written by Hayward himself are equally confident that their interpretation is the correct one. So as you can see, the evidence so far is like all we know is what the play was about. That's it. That's all we got. And even that, like some accounts put the emphasis on Henry and some accounts put the emphasis on Richard. And those might be different plays. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the final piece of the puzzle surrounding the identity of what play happened uh, is possibly and by possibly, I mean, probably apocryphal. Um, and that is a comment that Queen Elizabeth is supposed to perhaps have made in the summer following the rebellion. So she is in conversation with William Lambard, who is the keeper of the tower when she visited him in August 1601. And it is supposed to have gone like this. William Lambert presented Her Majesty with papers. She pr proceeded to further pages and asked where she found cause of stay. She, she asked some questions, so on and so forth. She comes to an account of King Richard II and says, I am Richard II, know ye not that. William Lambert responds and says, Such a wicked imagination was determined and attempted by a most unkind gentleman, the most adorned creature that ever your majesty made, which is perhaps a reference to Essex. And then her majesty is supposed to have said, He that will forget God will also forget his benefactors. This tragedy was played 40 times in open streets and houses. So if this exchange actually took place, it is clear that Elizabeth saw herself as a Richard II figure, probably uh, in a kind of a maligned way. Um, however, the this tragedy was played 40 times portion um, is really what seals it for Shakespeare scholars. And they think, okay, look, this is a reference to that play being super popular. We know that Shakespeare has a Richard II play. We don't really know of very many other Richard II plays that are out there. So this is, this is clear that she's talking about a play. She's talking about the Richard II play. So it must be Shakespeare's play. Okay. So that's what I've got for what happened in the Essex Rebellion and then why it's connected to this play. Um, the, the chapter of my dissertation that takes up this question is really concerned about why the Essex Rebellion has become so woven into the history of this play. Because mm -hmm. as I think I've demonstrated, we don't fucking know what play it was. We cannot definitively say one way or the other what it was. Yeah. Um, at this point, it doesn't fucking matter. This is kind of my argument that is not an argument is that like, it doesn't matter what play it was because mm -hmm. critical tradition has assigned it to Shakespeare. So what is that doing to how we encounter this play now that, um, s s sort of a, a pivotal early moment of performance history has been adopted mm -hmm. based on almost no evidence. So... Remind me if you can, and I yeah. don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to cause you pain if I okay. misstep or misspeak here. Yeah, yeah. But like overall, mm -hmm. this dissertation is getting at. Oh, okay. What so exactly? The, yeah, like, so how the, does Richard II factor in yeah, to the yeah, yeah. To sort of the whole thing? Like, that what's might going be on? helpful for you and or other people to know. Um, so the yeah. one sentence elevator pitch of this dissertation is that I am interested in how Shakespeare gets used to think through moments of political, social, civil upheaval. Okay. 
Okay. And right. So it's kind, kind of building on your Emlet thesis. Yeah. Because right? that's yeah, yeah. kind of what it was edging towards too. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is this is the first moment where that happens, um, or does it? <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Okay. But so I. I picked it because this is the first moment where it happens. This is my first chapter. Um, it is a disaster right now. There's no argument, whatever. Um, but it's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, um, Brexit is a thing that finally just fucking happened. I didn't think it was going to happen, but it, it happened. They're gone. They they Brexited. Anyway. Yeah. Um, in kind of. I mean, they did sort of well, the thing. It's not yeah. done yet. Yes. But yeah. yeah. But it's... I didn't think that was going to happen. Oh, me either. I really so, didn't because it's it, been no. like years. Anyway, in the in the lead up to this thing that just sort of happened, Richard II is fucking everywhere in the Brexit debates. Fucking everywhere. Richard really? II got quoted in a speech on the floor of Parliament in was it December. the whole this England. Yeah, the, it so the John it's, it's John of Gaunt speech. This England, the scepter dial, that speech, yeah. and at the at the sort of beginning or end of that speech, somewhere in that speech, uh, he says that England that was wont to conquer others hath made a shameful conquest of itself, and those two lines are fucking everywhere. So, like, I my my entire dissertation opens with, "Hey, Brexit." John of Gaunt, shameful conquest. Why? Mm-hmm. Um, because this is not the only line that Shakespeare ever wrote about England. It's not. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, it's not the only critical line about England that Shakespeare ever wrote. It's not the only positive line about England that Shakespeare ever wrote. There are so many. So why that one? Um so my my dissertation, I think, is actually going to start and end with Brexit because I open with like two pages of like, sure, look at this. Um, and then I think I'm going to come back and do like a proper coda at the end that sort of unpacks some of what I've done so far in the dissertation and then points to like Brexit as um, and what I have found really interesting about Brexit because uh, I've been following it for years, as we all have, because it's been yeah. going for years. <laughs> Whether uh, we wanted to or not, we've been yeah. forced to follow it. Is is the way that Shakespeare <sighs> gets appropriated on both sides of that debate. Yeah. The Leavers and the the Remainers um, have yeah. have used Shakespeare to make some arguments. And uh, the Richard II line comes up most frequently, but I've also seen Cymbeline. I've also seen Merchant, I think. One of the M plays. There are a handful of them, but it was one of the M plays, but I think Mm -hmm. it was Merchant. Um, And I've sort of been keeping track of them. I see these mostly on Twitter and every once in a while, like copy paste something over and be like, look at this. Isn't this fucking interesting? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So that's the Essex Rebellion. Right. And if this were like, let's, you know, indulge the pro Shakespeare argument side of yeah. this. So if this were actually referring to Shakespeare's play, King Richard II, the tragedy of Richard II, yeah. this would be the very first instance of, as you say, a Shakespeare appropriation of Shakespeare for real political ends and processes. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly the most high profile. Um, okay. It, I certainly, I can't think of, of anything else. And this, this would be the first time as Jonathan Bate Fucking Jonathan Bate. 
as Jonathan Bates so unhelpfully writes in his biography of Shakespeare, uh, Soul of the Age, uh-huh. the Essex Rebellion is the first time that someone loses their life because of a Shakespeare performance. And my mm. question is, are there more? Like, why would you say first? Mm. Right. But there's no note yeah. to back that up. That book is so Prove it. poorly noted. And like, <laughs> I don't know. I can't. That First of all, it's also old. Right. I think it's like turn of the century. Um, and I don't know. God, Jonathan you say Bate. turn of the century. It's still I so mean hard this for one. me to feel like. <laughs> yeah. I, I know. I, mean, I know you do. I yeah. know for sure that you do. Yeah, yeah. But like every time I hear that phrase still, I'm like, yeah. they can't mean my no. century the turn of no. the century yes, that i lived one. through i'm young yeah i think the book's like <laughs> around 20-ish years old yeah um yeah. and i'm not just gonna email jonathan bay out of the blue and be like what sure. the fuck does this mean like are you sitting on other people who died because of shakespeare because if you are i need oh to gosh. know about them maybe we should put it out there to our own network of you know hey folks who listen to us do yeah. you know of anyone yeah. historical or current who has yeah. lost their lives because of a shakespeare play please let us know um yeah so i've tweeted that out a couple of times oh, with yeah. zero response huh. zero so huh. um it might just be huh. you know a, a phrase construction that jonathan Bate did not think about it would lead people to wonder if right. there were more people who had been killed because of shakespeare i mean probably right because like Art is yeah. political and radical and yeah. Shakespeare is political and radical and people don't yeah. like it when they are in power and someone wants to question their power via Shakespeare. So mm-hmm. I'm sure, I'm sure there are, are people who have died uh, elsewhere because of Shakespeare, but uh, I don't know how to find them. Um, and I thought I might turn up someone in my uh, research on India, but in fact, I did not. Oh. Turned up a lot of racism, but no execution. Sure. Yeah. I um, Maybe we should move on. Or I don't know if you follow up questions that I can or can't answer. Well, yeah, no, I, I don't know. Um, it's a lot to think about. Mm-hmm. I guess, like, the point, all, all, I mean, the TLDR of what I just said was the Essex that means. too long didn't read. Gotcha. Thank you. Um, the the Essex Rebellion happened. People have long ascribed it to uh, having some involvement with Shakespeare's Richard II, but the evidence does not actually support that. The evidence is super, super ambiguous, and we cannot make a judgment call. I was thinking earlier today, because I, I told you when, before we started recording that I was struggling to find something to talk about <clears throat> regarding yeah, Richard II. trash, and I'm not <laughs> even sorry about saying it. I, I hate I'm, this play, and I hate I, this chapter, and I hate the Essex Rebellion, and I hate I, dissertations, and I hate grad school. I don't hate grad school. I love grad school, but I hate dissertations. Don't write a dissertation if you can avoid it. Mm-hmm. It's bad news. Uh-huh. Um I don't I don't like actively hate this play. I think it's mm. it's really got some, you know, beautiful verse. Uh it's I mean that John Agant speech is something else. It it is. Good. It's really, really you good. know, and some are Richards too, mm-hmm. you know. Hollow Crown um, speech is lovely. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. I mean, it's got some really great verse. It's like classic Shakespeare with the yeah. verse and the rhetoric. Yeah. Like it's real, it's good. real good. Um, you know, but it's too nationalistic even for me, I think, uh, in a lot of ways. 
but but also like the the one little kernel I was clinging to, but I didn't have a ton to say about it until this kind of your words kind of spurred some thoughts mm. in me, especially the, around like the Brexit debate. But also, I guess it's not really a debate anymore, is it? It's a thing no, that has happened. It happened. So, it happened. Yeah. Um, uh, but it this, you know, deposing a leader. Right. Uh, tell me if this sounds familiar. Right. Uh, Richard II is a king who thinks he has absolute divine uh, rule, right? Mm-hmm. He's anointed, doesn't have to answer to anybody. Mm-hmm. He, you know, uh, is has absolute power. Um, and he is deposed partially for that uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and his tyranny. Yeah, um, sounds like Charles I. Yeah, that, that. Uh, and, you know, I know we've said this about a lot of plays, but like thinking right now about the impeachment trial that is fizzling to oh, an end. Oh, you and, mean like in our current political moment? Yes. I was like, it's Richard, yes. it's Charles I. Obvs. Why is my brain doesn't what go I past care about Charles I? <laughs> I give zero shits about Charles the first and his lack of a head. Yeah. Um, sorry. <laughs> no, right, I was thinking right. much more yes. immediate. Topical relevance. Much more topical relevance. And yeah. and it surprised me, you know, because we'll go on later to like list upcoming productions of Richard too. Like, yeah. uh, I think it was the globe just did one. Um, they closed um, springtime of last year, of 2019. Um, but there aren't that many coming up in 2020. And I'm wondering if, you know, this time next year in 2021, if we're going to see more, right? Mm-hmm. Or or if suddenly they're going to start popping up because of, in this country, the impeachment issue, the, you know, the election. And, and now, you know, across the pond, our friends who are suffering or not depending on how they feel about it uh through through this break with the eu mm-hmm. um it just you know it feels very this play feels very topical not as not in like an exciting way the way caesar is topical you know what i mean right like caesar's like ah, kill him ah, instead of just like depose him and perhaps murder him in the dark of night in a tower you know uh it's it's much more this this one's a little more nuanced underhanded parallel but i think it's still there um i find that interesting so that i don't know thinking through like the top the overall topic of your thesis um it it feels to me like this play still uh, as you say with brexit yeah so uh that's all i got for my corner just to add on to your corner right because that's mm, mm mm-hmm so, shall we move on? Let's talk about grad school. The oh, stuff that you still like we? about grad school. Yes, we yeah, must. No, okay. Right. So, uh, every once in a while on 201 episodes, we talk about um, concerns that are sort of particular to grad school because uh, we are in grad school slash have been in grad school slash will be yep. in grad school for the rest of our lives. Um <laughs> Or another year and a half, it's fine. Uh, and also, we we have the idea that a lot of our listeners are in grad school or thinking about grad school or have gone to grad school um, or know someone who's in grad school. If you or someone you love has been affected by grad school, you may be entitled to compensation. <laughs> 
Um, Not by us. We don't no, have the money no, to compensate anyone. No. Uh, but so this week we want to talk about defending. So like if you mm-hmm. uh, are writing a thesis or a dissertation or uh, in some places like a senior capstone paper, you got to defend that bitch. Um, and yeah. it's defense season. I am attending my first defense next week. What up, Jill? You're going to fucking crush it. Uh, and it's going to be amazing. Um, and I, I have had two, I've had three defenses in my career. Um, Aubrey, you have had, I have had two and, and a, I guess like a capstone presentation. Sure is yeah sure. so like two yeah. and a half so two between and a half. us between us we have a handful of defenses yeah. um and yeah. i honestly love a defense i think a defense is one of the most exciting and fun things that we get to do um and i'm about it so first of all what the fuck is a defense yeah and why do we care well i think a <laughs> Def, you know the uh the t- the name of it sort mm-hmm. of implies a little bit of what it is it's yeah when you get to talk out your ideas with your committee right mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. when you when you are writing a thesis generally you will have a committee of two to three people right reading your work questioning your work helping you move forward mm-hmm. you know helping you edit revise refine your ideas whatever um that is what they do and then you get together when all of you kind of agree that it's ready right uh, like a loaf of bread <laughs> and you it's baked yeah. now let's yeah. talk about it um it's an and, and you yeah and then and then you talk it out and they push on those ideas and interrogate it and it's mm-hmm. really a chance for you the writer to show that you know your shit yeah right yeah did i did i miss anything no um dissertation committees are often bigger than three people but not always oh, okay um I, but you said thesis so that's fine uh like my committee has five people on it um oh, and i think yeah. that's i think that's average or the high end of average um i have never heard of a committee with more than five people but i don't know all schools so or all that. subjects. I mean, yeah, yeah, know. yeah. Uh, sorry. Also, this is specific to English and or the humanities. Right. Um, yeah. Right. So uh, science defenses, I'm sure, are very, very different. But like no one cares about science. So. Yeah. Uh, clearly they don't. Yeah, if they did. No. We science would is not like have really. removed ourselves from the climate. Yeah. It's really underfunded and, and like nobody pays attention. There's no money in science. Right, yeah. So, hey, yeah. kids, listen to your Aunt Jess. Get a degree in English. <laughs> yeah, that's where all the bank is. Yeah. Y'all just don't yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> also, to be super clear, I I actually do care about science, and that was very tongue-in-cheek, and I did not mean what I said, so don't come for me. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yep. um, Auntie Jess was feeling salty and sarcastic. <laughs> I love science. I love science. I'm dating a scientist, so, like... Suck Science it. is great, man. Some of my best friends are scientists. I have someone in my family is a scientist. I'm not science phobic. <laughs> anyway, defenses. Yikes, guys! Don't don't write a dissertation because your brain does this and it's madness. Um, this is your brain. This, this is, is your brain, brain on a dissertation. Yes. Yeah. 
the scrambled egg. It's not even scrambled. It's like fucking smashed into bits. Uh, Yeah. Um, A busted, drippy, raw egg. Yes. So in in the most recent defense that I had, uh, which was, I guess, about eight months ago at this point, I defended my prospectus for my Mm -hmm. dissertation. I think we probably talked about it at some point because it was Mm -hmm. a big part of what I was doing. Um, We spent about an hour uh chatting through the ideas that i was sort of um suggesting that i would take up in this dissertation talking about the research that i had already done the research i was planning to do where i thought it was going to find the information that i needed what i would do if the information turned out not to exist um sort of the frameworks and methodologies i was thinking about using where i was going to go to find all of these research bits that i needed um how i was going to get to those places that kind of thing i at this point do not remember either of my master's defenses other than they were both quite enjoyable hours um i defended my emlet thesis on my wedding anniversary five days after my husband left me so that was not great for anyone and then i passed without revisions because i'm a fucking badass and also he's not my husband anymore so who came out on top it was me it was me it was you 100 percent me yep um i mean i don't know who's laughing now but i'm the one saddled with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and a dissertation mm. so hilarious <laughs> i think we know who's the winner here it's me yeah. it's me um anyway uh the so what i what i would say to someone who was about to defend jill hope (laughs) um is wear something nice that makes you feel like a badass uh read the thing that you wrote (laughs) in full maybe a day or two before your defense um And then just go in excited to talk about what you've done. Uh, The most important question for any piece of scholarship that you got to have an answer to is why should someone else care? Yeah. You have to know what the stakes of your work are. Is? Stakes? Stakes is? Stakes are. You have to know what the stakes of your work are. are. Stakes are. Yeah. Yeah. got that subject verb agreement down hey thanks yeah it's a phd that i'm working Mm -hmm. on master of that letters yeah yeah um it is rare that people get to the defense and then don't pass um it does certainly happen but most places won't let you schedule a defense unless they think you're gonna pass um and frankly if you go into a defense and then don't pass that's kind of on your committee like in a in a a lot of ways like one you know you should maybe have been more prepared but two they should not have let you get into that situation right they should have been on that's what a committee is for (laughs) they are there to interrogate your ideas and make sure you are ready yeah like that's the whole point of having them uh, so like if they let you go in there and then don't pass you, that's a dick move. Yeah. I remember my defenses. I, uh, I, no one told me I should read my paper before I go in. I didn't do that. No? No. Oh, all right. No, I totally did not do that. I mean, I knew what I had written. Well, sure. Cause I you wrote, wrote it. it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, I did literally nothing to prepare, well, uh, except to worry it- about it. 
Yeah. And Mary Baldwin, the defense draft is due like a week before the defense. Is that right? Yeah. Does that sound right? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. in most, in most other places they're due far more in advance. So, uh, at Alabama, for example, people who are going into defenses now ish, it's entirely possible that they have not looked at that document in a month. Uh, sure. You know. Then it would make more sense to review yeah. what you yeah, wrote. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. You, you know, you had looked at your thing a week ago. So yeah. you, like you I, were fine. I for yeah. sure did not. Yeah. I, really I, I definitely reread both my theses the morning of my defense, but uh, hello, I'm your resident nerd. So <laughs> that should not be a Resident over-preparer, more like. But yeah, yeah. That. that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Type Nothing a wrong right with being here. over-prepared. Yeah. Nothing yeah. wrong with being over-prepared. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, well, I'm your classic sort of run-of-the-mill airing too underprepared most of the time because I rely on my wits mm. <laughs> and my tits. No, I'm kidding. How's that working out for you? I wits don't rely on my tits. <laughs> wits more so than tits. Wits, wits again, uh, getting by? <laughs> yeah, <Good. laughs> my wits and tits. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know where that came from. Um, it runs. Yeah, no, that's I just, it came from. I, yeah, that's, yep, you're right. Yeah, that's. Mostly what I remember from my defenses is that I worried too much about it. Yeah. Like and and it I didn't need to. Yeah. I didn't need to worry about it. I was so nervous. Yeah. I really was. I was nervous that I was gonna get in there and they weren't gonna pass me. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, until I figured out the secret that we just said, which yeah. is that if your committee is worth their salt, they're not gonna do that to you. Yeah. Uh, and they're not gonna let you go in. So so really it just ended up being like a really fun conversation mm-hmm. about my work and where I thought it would go in the future mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, for my M lit anyway, because it was all about theater of the oppressed and like um, really sort of creating a new genre of theater by combining yeah. like reappropriating Shakespeare into theater of the oppressed and not the other way around. Um, and like where I thought I could use that in the MFA the following year and like, I don't know, just having a really good time. Plus my thesis committee was awesome. It was Matt Davis and John Siegel. Like, who doesn't love those people? They're great. I mean, people who so, don't know them. Yeah, okay, fine. Well, <laughs> once you get to know them, you will love them. Yeah. So that I recommend having a thesis committee with at least a couple of people on it that you could genuinely just, like, have a beer with. Yeah. That'll make it so much more enjoyable to defend your work. So, so anyway, uh, that's uh, a defense. And if you are about to defense, if you're about to defend, we believe in you <laughs> and you got this. We do. Yes, we see you. We yeah. are rooting for you yeah. out there. And if you, you need this. like personal encouragement, holla at us. And we will yes. personally encourage you because we will. That's what we're Give here you a for. shout out on the pod and everything. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. rah rah. We'll yeah. totally do that for you. Yeah. Um, okay. So moving on to a little bit of gossip. Um we keep it play focused for the first part of the gossip. So here are some uh productions of Richard the Second happening near you this year, 2020. First, I've shouted them out before because they're in the middle of like the full eight play history cycle and they're just at the beginning of it. It's Brave Spirits Theater in DC. They're running Richard II now through April 18th. Uh, And you can find them at a couple of different venues uh, through April 18th. And then Um, uh, it'll pause and then it'll pick back up again and then I don't know. The way they're doing the repertory is a little confusing to me. So if somebody at Brave Spirits wants to get in touch and tell me how it's working. But like right now they're about to open one Henry four and pretty soon two Henry four. And then they'll have Richard two and one Henry four and two Henry four and Henry the fifth, like all running at the same time. It's supposed to be pretty cool. Oof, yikes. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. a lot of history. 
all at yeah. once. But like with a consistent group yeah. of actors. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a really cool project. So I'm into it. Yeah, you can catch them. Um, if you happen to be on the complete other end of the country uh, in the Southwest, you can catch it at Southwest Shakes in Mesa, Arizona um, from the end of February through like the first week of March. Yeah. So just a short run. Yeah. Short and that's an all female production, which should be yeah. cool. Yeah. Should be interesting. Um, also, the public, a.k.a. Shakespeare in the Park, you know, that theater company that we've talked about with their amazing much ado from last mm-hmm. year they just announced that they are mounting richard the uh, second as part of one of their two shows this summer so that'll run from may 19th to june 21st so if you're in new york city you can get you know i think they do it by lottery but it's free so. it's free shakespeare in the park yeah so like ugh, go see it uh, and again, if you're on the other side of the country, uh, you can catch it in Merced, California from Merced Shakespeare Fest uh, from June 12th to 21. And that's a bilingual production, which will also be fucking cool, I bet. Yeah. So go see it. Woohoo. Way to go, Central Valley, Merced. That's like 45 minutes from my hometown. Yeah, so, you know, what up, Merced? I see you. Okay. Anyway, uh, also in the other in the world of Shakespeare Bubble Gossip, uh, STA happened. That's the Shakespeare Theater Association. Uh, Staw. It's a big Staw. It's a big conference where people who are it, who run regional Shakespeare companies or just Shakespeare companies around this country get together and uh, do theater people things. Mm. I didn't get to go. My oh, boss okay. is there. Or she. <laughs> I didn't get to go. Sadly, it's in. It was in Dallas. It just huh. happened. Like it just wrapped uh, this past huh. Sunday. Uh, it was like a week of what appeared to be fun things I yeah. saw from afar cool. and a lot of sharing of like best practices and educational stuff. And I, you know, they're not as um, academically centered as cool. SAA, their, cool. their larger older cousin. Um, but it seemed like a fun group of people. So happy star time, guys. I don't have much more to say about that. That's all I got. Um, oh, and also, if you were interested about the 2019 Blackfriars uh, Conference keynote speeches, particularly the one by that David Sterling Brown that I raved about, they are now on the American Shakespeare Center's YouTube channel, uh, open to the public. So cool. you can go watch them um, and listen to the words of all those amazing keynotes. Briefly, uh-huh. uh, we're behind on this, but it just popped in my head. Uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival has just hired their first resident intimacy choreographer. Yes. Which is fucking cool and overdue frankly good for them um and also this week the governing body of some aspect of theater uh has released guidelines for uh hiring and um working with intimacy choreographers it might be the actors equity oh it might be not them. Uh, it made the rounds on my Twitter feed. Um, oh. And I was like, that's cool, but I don't care because I'm not a practitioner. <laughs> so. Sure. But intimacy choreography is a thing. And if you have intimate moments, you should find one and hire yeah. one. Do it. Yeah. yeah. It is one of the faster growing uh, areas of theater at this point. It's a it's a wide open job market. So yep. um, if you're looking for a job in the theater too, maybe consider doing that. Yep. I hear it's a really cool job. I, yep. I've met a couple of intimacy choreographers and they are <laughs> rad. They are yeah. rad people. And they help the people in the scene take control over their bodies, like and give them agency in, in an intimate scene, which is yeah. fucking awesome. Uh, and a thing that should not have to like 
that job should not have to exist, right? Like in an and ideal perfect yes. world, it should not have to, right? But it's not an ideal perfect world. So we we need these people and, and they do a great thing. So yep. uh, there that is. Uh, thank you so much for listening, everyone. We hope you leave this podcast more informed about the Essex Rebellion than when you started. <laughs> uh, tune in next week. We are uh, switching gears and we're going back to a one-on-one and we're doing a contemporary. It's going to be Maid's Tragedy. It's awesome. You're going to love it. Oh, You're gonna love it. It's gonna be so good. I'm so excited. Okay. Wamble it out. Wamble it out. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, leave us a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For show notes and other fun stuff, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Yeah, get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. Email us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or at hurlyburlyshake, no S, on Twitter. The Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jeff Hamlet. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. I'm just going to jump in. I'm just going to jump in. Um, (laughs) (laughs) She said and then paused interminably.